Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Betsy Greenleave. She's a premier women's health expert, best-selling author, and specializes in female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery. She is the first female in the United States to have become board certified in urogynecology. Today, I asked her all the questions that so many of my listeners have privately shared with me. We talked about her background in surgery. We spent a great deal of time talking about the vaginal and gut microbiome the impact of urinary incontinence, which is a $20 billion a year industry, risk factors, ways to address this, as well as chronic urinary tract infections, interstitial cystitis, uterine prolapse, vulvovaginal conditions, changes that happen to our vulvas in perimenopause and menopause. And this includes changes in loss of muscle, loss of elasticity, loss of estrogen, which has a significant impact on the vaginal microbiome the impact of the Women's Health Initiative and therapies to address all of these. I hope you will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I have no doubt Dr. Greenleaf will be back to have a second round two. Dr. Betsy, it's a pleasure to connect with you outside of our normal avenues. So nice to have you on on the podcast today. Yay! I'd love for you to share with listeners a little bit about your background because, you know, you started as a general surgeon and then you ended up going into gynecology and then urology. And so you have this very important distinction. I believe you're the first female urogynecologist. Yeah, the first board certified. So, which is interesting because urogynecology wasn't a specialty until the late 1970s and it didn't actually become a board certified specialty until Oh, is that the 2014? I think it is. I should actually look at the actual year. So yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I went to medical school and was one of those people. I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do. I just wanted to help everybody. You know, I wanted to save the world. And so I went through my rotations and I'd be like, Oh, I like this. I don't like that. And I found myself drawn to the surgical subspecialties. And when I started off in general surgery, though, there was something that was really lacking was, and let me tell you, I love general surgeons. If you need, if your appendix bursts, you want a general surgeon, you know? Yeah. So, but I found them to be very like body mechanics, Mm -hmm. like get in there, get the job down, get out. And so when I was rotating during general surgery, I was the one who was like seeing the patients like, so how are you feeling today? Like, how are things going? Like, how do you feel now that your gallbladder has gone? Like, like I wanted to know like that emotional kind of connection and you don't get that in general surgery. So I got halfway through and I was like, oh, this isn't what I want to do. And I couldn't decide but like between OBGYN and general surgery anyway. So I went with general surgery first and then I switched into OBGYN and so obstetrics and gynecology. And though I love delivering the babies, I was missing the surgery aspect of it. So now I had the relationship with the patients, but I wasn't getting as much surgery as I wanted. And it wasn't until my senior year in residency that topic of urogynecology came up. And I'm like, what in the world is that? And I remember actually when I first got a fellowship in urogynecology, I told my mom and she thought it was like Euro Disney, like European, like it was some kind of, you know, (laughs) fancy gynecology. And I'm like, no, it's Euro like urology. So having to deal with the bladder and urinary system and gynecology. So it's a combination. So I did a residency and then a fellowship in the urogynecology. And then here we are. So... Yeah. And I would imagine, you know, this kind of burgeoning specialty is really important because women want to be treated by other women. We all share the same parts. And I think there's something about that shared experience that allows women to perhaps put their guard down. Now, when you're in clinical practice, what are some of the common things that women will come to you for? And part of this conversation is to really destigmatize talking about pelvic floor health, to destigmatize talking about painful sex, to destigmatize urinary incontinence, because if you live long enough, you may or may not experience one or more of those issues. 
Yeah. Well, unfortunately, 50% of women experience prolapse and you might not even know you have one. And you're like, somebody, somebody's like, what is a prolapse? Well, I'll tell you when people have them and it's not something that's often talked about, they freak out because all of a sudden something's bulging out of their vagina and people are like, oh my God, do I have a tumor? Like what is happening? Am I turning inside out? Like, and really what happens to 50% of women is that as we age, and it could be from childbirth or lifting heavy objects or bearing down too hard to have a bowel movement, we damage the ligaments that hold the uterus and the vagina and the bladder and the rectum up. And so our pelvic floors are just really just open to gravity. We really don't have anything other than those ligaments holding everything in place and everything kinds of droops and drops and sags and, you know, other, like other parts of our body as we age. But when it comes, you know, when things are coming out of the vagina, because people don't talk about it, it, a lot of patients are panicking and often too, which will go along with that incontinence. So there's a number of different types of incontinence There's stress incontinence when you cough, laugh, sneeze, or more commonly, there's overactive bladder. And this is something that urogynecologists take care of. This is where like all of a sudden you're fine. And then you're like, make way, I got to get to the bathroom. So where your bladder just really spasms and it starts trying to push out the urine before you're ready to do to pee. And then there's this sudden urge to have to go, or maybe you're going 10 bazillion times in the day or 10 bazillion times at night. And uh, the interesting fact is this is something that can start as early as in your 20s, but by time, and this is for men and women, by time we reach our 70s, there are more people walking around at any given time with an overactive bladder than has the common cold, except for, you know, we don't, we don't talk about it in the, the pad in, in diaper industry is a multi-billion dollar industry when, you know, a lot of people just kind of look at this as, oh, it's just a, you know, happens when you get older and they blow it off. And really just because it's common doesn't mean that there isn't things that can be done. And there's tons of different, tons of different treatments for that. So typically most urogynecologists deal with prolapse and incontinence. Those are the two biggies, recurrent urinary tract infections, even sometimes fecal incontinence, a difficulty holding in stool. And, you know, pooping yourself, that's, that happens. And then I had a special interest in recurrent vaginal infections and pelvic pain. So those were things that we, we took care of. It's really interesting because I was an ER nurse in inner city Baltimore. I probably have not told this story on the podcast before, but when I was precepting a student, you know, I sent my student in, we're going to put a Foley catheter in for anyone who's listening. This is when you put a tube in a, in a, a blood into the urethra to help someone you know, debulk their bladder. And this is a woman who came in with congestive heart failure and was going to get diuretics, which are going to make her pee. And my student who was very, very innocent came back out and said, there's something obstructing her vagina. And I was like, okay. And I was like, can you describe it to me? And she was like, I think it's a potato with sprouts. And so I went back in with my student. I identified that, yes, indeed, there was a sprouted potato. And I said to my patient, I was like, Mrs. Smith, her name wasn't Smith, but for argument's sake, Mrs. Smith, I believe that you have a potato in your vagina. And she said, yes. She's like, that helps my inside stay inside. And so, you know, pessaries are oftentimes a way that we deal with uterine prolapses. And this is a woman who had had like seven children vaginally. And so I've never been able to share the potato pessary story, but now I've shared it. And needless to say, that was a source of interesting conversation for my student, probably for years to come. But when we talk about urinary incontinence, I feel like nearly everyone I talked to, even my grandmother, who was a retired nurse, she used to talk about this all the time. She just said, we just assume that we have to start wearing pads once we get north of like 55 years old. And as you mentioned, it's a $20 billion industry. And so we've become even like Lisa Rinner, who's one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, pedals depends and talks about how she wears them underneath her evening gowns and, and which I can't imagine, but let's talk a little bit about some of the things that set us up for developing these pelvic floor issues. And I know you mentioned vaginal delivery and for a lot of people, they go through protracted labors, long labors, you know, maybe they do, you know, hours and hours and hours of laboring, and then they end up getting a C-section. But I think about things that for me were surprising to learn about can be risk factors for developing urinary incontinence, including chronic constipation. But as you mentioned, it's that chronic pressure in our, you know, abdominal cavity that will wreak havoc on the pelvic floor muscles. 
Yeah. So unfortunately, I wish I could say that that potato story was not the only time that's ever happened. But, you know, interesting back in ancient Egypt, they used to use pomegranates in ancient Rome. They used to use rocks. I advise against all those. But the idea with the pessary is that it's a support device that you put in the vagina that wedges in place and holds things up. We They do make medical grade ones that are actually made of silicone. So I would, and I'd recommend that. Or there is a product over the counter called the Impreza, which is almost like a tampon that can be bought. It's made by Poise. It's, it's almost like a tampon that can be used to hold things up like that. But you're right. People want to be like, well, how do I prevent this to begin with? You know, so I don't even get to that point. Well, unfortunately, any woman who's had children is at risk. So, and you don't have to have had a vaginal delivery. Like I know too much. So I had elective C-sections, which they don't really allow much anymore, but to try to save my pelvic floor. And I still ended up having a prolapse because the weight of the pregnancy can damage those ligaments. So anything that's going to put pressure on the pelvis, like if you're somebody who has asthma or chronic bronchitis, chronic coughing can, can do that. A lot of women, we just try to be tough and we do everything ourselves. And so if that means like lifting something heavy, we're like, Hey, I'm superwoman, I can do it. Well, if you lift things heavy and you're not lifting properly, which means blow out as you lift, what if you're holding your breath and straining as you lift, that pressure is going to build up in your abdomen. It's got to go someplace. And a lot of times it's towards your pelvic floor. So you can damage the ligaments in your pelvic floor because of that. That's why when we see weightlifters, they're like blowing out as they're lifting because they're trying not to give themselves a hernia and a prolapse is just a pelvic hernia. You know, try, I can't tell you how many like people in the United States are chronically constipated. I mean, our poor diets, unfortunately, we're not getting enough fiber, not getting enough water. 75% of Americans are chronically dehydrated. So the combination being dehydrated and not enough fiber in our diets makes it hard for us to pass our bowels and sitting on a toilet and straining and straining is going to damage those ligaments also. So trying to keep the bowels as normally as possible. And I mean, there's even, I love doing microbiome testing of the stool, which is a way for us to look if the bacterial in the gut is imbalanced, which can also add to constipation. So all these things uh, play in together for pelvic floor strength. But something that's really interesting is in France, if you have a baby, you immediately go into a pelvic floor physical therapy program. So in the United States, if you have orthopedic surgery, what do you do afterwards? They put you through physical therapy, but not they don't put you through pelvic physical therapy in the United States if you have a baby. So this is something like these, a lot of this damage happens in our earlier years. It's not showing up until years and years later. So we need to be doing our Kegels. And, and unfortunately, a lot of people don't do Kegels correctly. A lot of people are bearing down instead of thinking about lifting up. I, I had someone explain it to me. I like this explanation. Like picture having a straw in your vagina and you're trying to like suck up fluid through a straw. That's you want to be doing a lifting mo motion when you're doing your Kegel exercises, not bearing down and not doing them when you're trying to pee. The only reason they tell you to do it when you're trying to pee is to figure out what muscles you use to stop the flow of urine. But a lot of women will be like, oh, I'm doing it every time I pee. No, because well, what happens with that is if the pee is not coming out and your bladder is trying to push, the urine's going to go where the least amount of pressure is, and that could be back up to the kidneys. So you don't want to be doing it at that point in time. But the same muscles holding in gas, holding in stool, holding in urine, it's all the same. So keeping those muscles strong because we start losing 8% of our muscle mass every decade after the age of 30. So by the time we reach our 60s, there people can actually develop what's called pelvic atrophy, where the muscles in our pelvic floor just, they're so thin, they can't do anything. So this will help protect the pelvic floor, help keep things up, help with incontinence, help with sexual function. And a lot of people don't think of that, you know, not having an or like, Women will complain sometimes that their orgasm as they get older is not as strong as it used to be. Well, it's because those muscles aren't as strong. So you need to actually keep doing those exercises to strengthen the pelvic floor. So I'm trying to think of other things. Yeah, it's coughing. Oh, well, the other thing that happens as we age is our estrogen levels start to go down. 
And when our estrogen levels go down, our vaginal tissue starts to thin out. And we do get some support from that tissue when it's thicker and healthier. So now we have, you know, all of a sudden we're in our 50s and 60s and we have thin mucosa, thin muscles, and weakened or damaged ligaments. And now this is when for the majority of people, these conditions are starting to show up, even though they can show up in younger ages, or it can show up later, majority of people in their 50s are going to start seeing these problems. You know, Mm -hmm. I have to say, I know better. And I was so mad the other day, I went to go lift something really heavy, and I know better not to. And all of a sudden, I was like, damn it, if I didn't pee a little bit in my pants, and I'm like, gosh, (laughs) darn it. I'm like, I know better not to do that, you know? So, Consuming Element on a daily basis is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health. And we know that by consuming proper amounts of electrolytes, it can contribute to quality sleep, which is critical to all of my perimenopause and menopausal patients and clients. We know that magnesium increases a neurotransmitter called GABA, that is known for producing calming effects. And consuming adequate levels of sodium can help you sleep through the night because low sodium levels increase cortisol and adrenaline. Additionally, if you are intermittent fasting, it's important to understand that when you fast, two things can dehydrate you. Number one, if your insulin levels remain low, it can signal to our kidneys to excrete more sodium or salt, a process called naturesis. And as glycogen or stored glucose is broken down, the water left over from the glycogen breakdown is urinated out. So if you want to take care of your health in one of my favorite ways, you can consume element electrolytes. My favorite flavors are grapefruit and citrus, but there are many others to choose from. And if you go to drinkelement.com slash Cynthia, you can get a free sample pack to try them out on your own. Again, it's drinkelm.com mnt.com slash Cynthia for your free sample pack where you can try all of their flavors. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Well, but I think it goes without saying that, you know, with awareness and education, we can think about these things, even as an NP, because I had two breech kids, I had two C-sections, I kind of assumed I was safe from the pelvic floor issue. So you're absolutely correct. I had two big kids, not being a very big person. And even though I didn't go through pushing babies out of my vagina, you're right over, you know, nine months of carrying, you know, pregnancies that alone can weaken the pelvic floor muscles. One thing that I thought was really interesting, and I got some questions specific to interstitial cystitis, which I promise Mm. is we're doing a segue 
people who say that, you know, they've got these bladder irritants and that can exacerbate the incontinence symptoms. So I start thinking about things that are, that seem pretty benign, right? Like coffee, tomatoes, citrus fruits, alcohol, chocolate, and how that can kind of underline this urge incontinence. So this is, you know, when you feel like you have to go, you have to go. Like I jokingly say to my husband, I drink a lot of water during the day and I have to be very careful how much I drink relative to how much walking around and talking and podcasting and those kinds of things. Because if I keep thinking about needing to go, it almost becomes like I'm definitively going to have a little bit of spill of urine. And, you know, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, because I had a couple of questions about interstitial cystitis, which we'll talk about was, you know, the foods I eat, I know can worsen that. And I was explaining that it can also worsen this urge incontinence. So just being careful and conscientious, if you're prone to that, don't wait until your bladder is totally full, like try to be more regular and diligent about emptying your bladder. So you're not getting to this point of no return. Like I think back to when I was pregnant and you would have that, like, I have to go right now. Sometimes you still get that sensation. You're not pregnant, but you're, as you mentioned, the muscles are not as strong. It's important to do Kegels. Probably many of us aren't doing them at all or doing them improperly and how all of these changes with age, including the hormonal fluctuations can exacerbate these symptoms. Yeah. So interstitial cystitis is a really interesting condition in that it was discovered in the late 1800s and we still don't know much more about it. It's an inflammatory condition of the bladder. I have my own opinions after treating it for many, many years. There are foods that can aggravate it, but I think there has been this theory in the past that there's this gut relationship to it. And I have seen that over the years that gut imbalances will make people more sensitive to these foods or histamine intolerances, people who can't tolerate foods that are high in histamine, but foods that are also very high in an acid, like the ones you mentioned, will also irritate the bladder. So what happens with interstitial cystitis is you get microscopic cracks in the lining of the tissue. So it's almost like it's like a paper cut in the bladder. And when the urine gets into a paper cut, it burns. So it's kind of like if you had salt water and you poured it on your finger and your finger was normal, you'd be like, yeah, whatever. But if you had a paper cut and you poured some salt water on your finger, you'd be like, oh my God, this hurts or, you know, would cause some irritation. So that's what interstitial cystitis usually is. Also foods that are uh, high in artificial sweeteners and artificial dyes can be very irritating. I myself years ago was dieting and I wasn't drinking enough fluids. And so to try to drink more fluids, I was drinking crystal light. And all of a sudden I developed this, like felt like I had Tabasco in my bladder. And, you know, this is what I do for a living. And I'm like, there's no way I have interstitial cystitis. And I had to go to somebody else to scope me. Sometimes they can pick it up on a scope. Sometimes they, they can't. There's no definitive test for it. And when you know, I had big ulcers in my bladder from the artificial sweeteners in the crystal light. So it, that can be very, very irritating. But yeah, it, any things that are bladder irritants, like the foods that you mentioned, anything that are very acidic, they can also aggravate not only interstitial cystitis, but also overactive bladder symptoms. So, and there's, there's so many other causes. Sometimes there are causes that are not related to the bladder for these kind of conditions. If you have something wrong with the spinal cord of herniated discs, that can sometimes cause inflammation downstream of where the back injury is. And so that's going to affect all those organs that are downstream. And that could be the vagina, that could be the vulva, that could be the bladder. So a lot of times when we're looking at these pelvic symptoms, sometimes it's the body screaming for help and there's another problem elsewhere. Surprisingly, I have found women who've had tears in their hips, you know, whether they're like doing lots of sports or even during childbirth and straining, they've torn a ligament in their hip and they don't feel the pain in the hip. They feel the pain in the pelvis and now their pelvic floor it becomes spasmed or their bladder becomes inflamed or the vulva becomes inflamed because that's those downstream nerves are going, okay, you know, that's got to start looking for the pain elsewhere, but it's difficult because anytime people hear the word vagina or pelvis, it, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment around those organs. And really, it's, they're just other body parts. Like, really should just normalize the conversation about those areas. But I see it even in medical, in the medical community is if you go to a doctor, like, like I'll send patients to the orthopedic because I'm like, I think I want them to have you check the back or check the hip. 
And they're like, no, it's vagina. It's yours. You know, like if they hear vagina or, or bladder, like, no, that's your parts. Go back to the urogynecologist. I'm like, no, no, no. It could be these other areas. So yeah, it's really, you know, trying to, you almost are, are like a, a detective trying to uncover like what areas are causing the problems. I said, even diet and inflammation in the gut can lead to some of these issues. So well, yeah. I think it's really being a detective and you're talking about referred pain, meaning that, you know, you injure your hip, injure your back, and then you're having genitourinary pain and discomfort. Thank you for being such a huge advocate for women, because, you know, let's be clear, the traditional allopathic model is very laser focused on your organ system. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, you treat joints and bone issues. If you're a cardiologist, you focus on the heart and maybe other major blood vessels. So important to be thinking root cause systemic manifestations of things that can happen. So we started talking a little bit about some of the changes that are occurring in the genitourinary system. We call it the GU system as we're transitioning into perimenopause and menopause. And you talked about this loss of estrogen and how that impacts the vagina. And I think this is really important for people to understand. This is why the pH of vagina changes the you know, the microbiome, like we have a vaginal microbiome and an oral microbiome and a gut microbiome, and they're all interrelated. So if one is unhealthy, very likely the rest of them are not, are not healthy either. But let's talk a little bit about what's starting to change in the vagina as we are get or vulva. It seems to be now like it's more in vogue to say vulva. What is your preference? You know, I always say vagina only because that's what most people will say, but vulva is really the outer part and vagina is the tube inside. So proper would be the vulva, but we're getting changes as we age in both areas. And so you're getting a thinning of that tissue and where that comes into play is that now as we age, we are more at risk of recurrent vaginal infections and urinary tract infections. So more issues with odor. Some people aren't always like, well, I have a bladder infection. I have a urinary, you know, uh, vaginal infection. They just know the symptoms. So this may be like itching. This may be burning. This may be an odor, whether it's in the bladder or vulva or the vagina. And so what ends up happening is when we're young and and our hormones are going crazy, we have this nice thick vaginal tissue that's actively growing. And as it actively grows, the new tissues are pushing out the old cells and the old cells slough off. When they slough off, they contain a chemical called glycogen. And that's actually the food source of lactobacillus. So lactobacillus is a bacteria and there's many different strains of lactobacillus, but that's the healthy bacteria that we can't live without. It keeps our vagina healthy, keeps our bladder healthy. And so how it does that is it eats the glycogen in these, in these cells, and in return, it produces hydrogen peroxide. And that hydrogen peroxide chases away the bad bacteria, chases away the yeast, and also uh, balances the pH of the vagina. So it keeps the vagina very acidic, so everything stays in balance. Now, what ends up happening is... As we get older and that estrogen level starts to go down, we're essentially starving the lactobacillus to death. And so once the lactobacillus is no longer there, now bacteria from the rectum, because the rectum and the vagina are so close together, no matter how clean you are, like people always think like, oh, you know, I'm very clean. Like, why am I having these problems? It has nothing to do with cleanliness. It has to do with the anus is very close to the vagina. And just by proximity, bacteria will transfer back and forth. Of course, proper wiping and hygiene does play a factor. But even in the cleanest people, you can still get recurrent infections. So the bacteria from the gut now gets into the vagina. And that's one step closer to the bladder. And so that's usually where the bladder infections are coming from is the vagina is acting as a reservoir for that bacteria that's now getting into the bladder causing urinary tract infections, bacteria that's getting into the, the vagina and the vulva area causing odor and itching and burning and discharge. And so unfortunately, these things all get thrown out of whack. And the even worse is that when the basic bacteria is out of balance, it actually increases our risk of sexually transmitted diseases because now we get inflammation in the vagina and microscopic like cracks in that tissue. And that's actually puts us at higher risk if um, if, we have, if we're with a partner that might have had uh, have some other 
infection. It puts us at a higher risk for sexually transmitted infections, HIV, and other bacterial infections. So it becomes very difficult. And in the past, all we had to treat the vagina was topical hormones. And, you know, a lot of people get nervous about the hormones and themselves are not evil. It's the synthetic hormones that were really on the market that were the problem. But now there's a lot of bioidentical options that are even prescription based that can be used. Or if you don't want to use hormones at all, then the regenerative therapies, which are fascinating, a lot of the regenerative therapies have been around since the 1980s, early 90s. They've been used for cosmetic purpose. You know, lasers have been used on people's faces since the 80s for skin rejuvenation. Well, they, someone, I wish I came up with it, decided, well, wait a minute. If I turn that into a wand that can be placed in the vagina, can we rejuvenate the vaginal tissue? And lo and behold, you can. And that kind of birthed the industry of using things that are used cosmetically for the vagina. So that's now lasers, that's radio frequency using sound waves to generate heat. And when you heat tissue to a certain temperature, it will cause regeneration of the tissue Um, using red light wands. Red light therapy can also cause regeneration of the tissue. There's something called carboxy therapy, and that's actually applying a topical carbon dioxide gel to the tissue that will actually attract oxygen into the tissue, which will cause regeneration. And um, those are two things that can be done at home or the red light and the carboxy where the other things have to be done by a health practitioner or even platelet-rich plasma using the growth factors in your own blood and having them injected in and around the vulvar and vaginal area to cause that tissue to regenerate. So there's really some fascinating things that are on the market now. Yeah, it's really interesting. I know we have a mutual friend who has tried all of these things, Susan Bratton, who's actually been a guest twice and talks about all things related to sexual health. Now, when we're talking about these changes that are happening in the vaginal microbiome, the vulva, et cetera, we would be remiss if we don't also mention like testosterone. And for a lot of women, they get the combination of the ligamentous changes to their orgasms are strong, exacerbated by this loss of testosterone. And I know for some women, they are using both bioidentical estradiol, progesterone, and also testosterone to help with that. Now, I would love your take on the Women's Health Initiative. I always love asking my GYN colleagues and friends, you know, I talk a lot about this on the podcast that I think we have a whole generation of clinicians, as well as women that are paranoid about taking hormones. And, you know, thankfully, I've had a lot of guests on that have talked about how this has really disrupted an entire generation. I look at my mom's generation and it actually, for me, I was finishing my NP program and 2000 into 2001. So right at the time when the women's health initiative data was released, I feel like in many ways, it's done a lot of detrimental things to not just women and women's health, but their sexuality, their cognitive function, their bone and brain health. What is your take on that in your position? Yeah, I was doing my residency when that came out. So like prior to the women's health initiative, it was like everybody on hormones. It's going to keep you young. It's going to keep you healthy. And then the Women's Health Initiative came out. This was a study that looked at uh, estrogen and progesterone in women. And they stopped the study because there were women who developed breast cancer, estrogen-related cancers, and heart disease. And so it kind of all of a sudden came to a screeching halt. And then what was taken out of that is doctors panicked because with first thing we do is do no harm. So we'll we'll just take away everyone's hormones so we won't harm them. Well, instead of actually looking at the study, and so now looking back, we go, wait a minute. This study was done, number one, on an older population that probably based on their age and lifestyle alone were at higher risk for these conditions. And then the bigger problem was it was done with synthetic hormones. And so we know that synthetic hormones, when the body metabolizes them, it don't, it doesn't break it down in the same way as natural hormones. So synthetic hormones have toxic metabolites that is known to damage DNA. And when you damage DNA, when the DNA repairs, you can sometimes turn on cancer genes. So, and it was also in the test and it was in the estrogen progesterone arm of the study where it was probably more so the synthetic progesterone than anything else that was the issue. And we know that with synthetic progesterone, there's increased risk of anxiety, depression, problems sleeping, weight gain. But when you give someone natural progesterone, they have improvement in mood. 
they have improvement in sleep, it decreases their risk of all these cancers, it increases and, and estrogen, progesterone are also, we think of them as hormones, we think of them having to deal with what makes us feminine and sex, and they're also neurotransmitters, and they protect our brain, and they have to be taken in conjunction with each other to get that neurotransmitter protection. So yeah, so the WHI study did a great in service to women, because even the estrogen alone arm, even though it was synthetic, which I, I don't, I'm not a big fan of synthetic hormones, there was protection against colon cancer and there was protection against osteoporosis. So there were more benefits than there was harm in the estrogen alone. But the problem with bioidentical, and I like to call them bioequivalent because I think bioidentical has been overused and it sometimes gets a bad rap, but bioequivalent, which are naturally occurring types of hormones, is that there's really not a big pharmaceutical company market for them because you can't patent something that's natural. And because of that, unfortunately, we're not going to see giant studies looking at these hormones because there's not any money to do a giant study. So now with that being said, there are, everyone thinks you got to get your hormones have to be compounded to get them as bioidenticals. There are some prescription bioidenticals on the market too. So there are some really good options with that, but you know, you know, one of there was a recent study, and I've been looking for this because I teach this course on this and can't find the article, but there was an article that showed that if you don't get on hormones within five years or three years of going through menopause and you go on like hormones later, you've lost the brain protection. So that actually we need to be getting on the hormones when we're younger for brain protection than after the fact, because you can actually lose that. And I have to say, even though I had a hysterectomy when I was 41, and at the time I didn't know a lot about integrative and functional medicine, and I too was, as even as an OBGYN, I was scared of hormones. So I was like stubborn. I'm like, I'm not going on hormones. I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. Well, after five years of hot flashes and just side effects, I was like, I don't care if it causes cancer. Give me the hormones. Well, I'm really upset about it is that looking back, I wish that study about the brain protection was out because now it doesn't matter that I'm on hormones. I've already lost that brain protection of the neurons for the brain because I didn't get on it within three years of my hysterectomy. So, you know, luckily there are newer studies that are coming out, but unfortunately there's still this great fear of hormones. And personally, I don't, if it was up to me, I would take synthetic hormones completely off the market because I just think they're dangerous. And, uh, and, and that's my opinion. I also wish we had, we do, there are no bioidentical birth control methods out there. You know, I wish somebody would come up with a bioidentical birth control because we know even with birth control, not only are you getting synthetic hormones, but those hormones affect the gut. And the same thing, if you're taking hormone replacement with synthetic hormones, it's affecting your gut microbiome, which is leading to other inflammation and leading to vitamin disruptions. So we're getting vitamin deficiencies from those synthetic hormones. So, Well, and I think probably most people listening were on oral contraceptives for a period of their youth, not realizing that they were not giving full consent. I certainly would have thought very differently about oral contraceptives had I been fully informed. You know, it impacts the gut microbiome. You mentioned the the B vitamins. We know that, you know, your pheromone sensitivity is different when you're on oral contraceptives. So you might not even pick the same partner. A lot of women probably come off of contraceptive at some point and they're like, well, wait a minute, this is probably not the person I should be with. But I think it's important to kind of bring that up that we're hopeful that they will they meaning, you know, big pharma is going to be looking into options beyond synthetic oral contraceptives, etc. Now, one thing that I in my research and listening in on other podcasts you have done, you were talking about ingredients in some of the hormonal replacement therapies, specifically estradiol that sometimes women will use because they're having predominant vaginal symptoms related to hormone loss. And so there's an ingredient called propylene glycol, Oh yes, <laughs> which I know you're not a fan of. And so I'd love to talk about why, because there may be women listening that are maybe not on a patch. Maybe they're using this in lieu of systemic absorption of estradiol, which is the predominant form of estrogen prior to going through menopause. And so let's talk a little bit about what this does along with the parabens. There's a lot of parabens and propylene glycol that are in these 
estradiol preparations that we're using in our vaginas. Yeah. And also it's found in a lot of lubricants. So there's a lot of other, and it's actually found in yeast medication, like the cream yeast medications or the bacterial vaginosis medications. So propylene glycol is a thickening agent. It's also used as a preservative. It's actually considered food safe when you look at it from any of the websites when it comes to how the FDA clears these products. I actually found it in some hot sauce recently, which was a little annoying too, because my kids wanted to eat something and I'm like, let's put those ingredients. And it was in some food products. But what it can do is it's, it's, it can be a mucosal irritant. So it can actually irritate that delicate tissue in the vulvar area. And so it's funny because once again, this was not something I was taught in medical school, it was something I found out years later. And I would see patients where you'd give them a prescription and you're like, here, I'm going to give you this, this medication for your vagina. And they would be like, it burns, it burns, it burns. Like, why is it burning? It's supposed to be helping. I'm like, okay, well, let's switch it to a different one. And it burns. And you're like, what is going on? Well, in some people, they're very sensitive to this propylene glycol. And so I try to find products that don't have it. There still are some that I will recommend that have it because I'm like, all right, well, the other ingredients kind of outweigh. But for the most part, I try to stay away from it because it can be an irritant. And even like, well, the whole science of lubricants. I mean, a lot of us think about when we think of lubricant, you think about KY jelly, And when you're in a medical office, you'd have big tubes of surgery lube. But if you look at the ingredients on it, they contain a lot of propylene glycol. And even worse, we now know that those products are not only not pH balanced for the vagina, but their osmolarity is not right for the vagina. So osmolarity has to do with the amount of particles and solutes in this material. And if there's too many solutes, it, what it does is it kind of like, like, it's like almost like pine salt on a slug. It's going to just shrivel up the tissue. And so KY purposely, and they know this, it purposely dries the tissue so that you have to use more, more. and you have to keep buying more. But it's, it's horrible. And, um, you know, years ago, we actually switched the lubricants in our office to being more vaginal friendly products like Good Clean Love is a great company. They make ones that are pH balanced and very closely related to the actual osmolarity of the vagina. There's another company called Uber Lube that makes one. And so there's this whole science now behind vaginal lubrication. And so, you know, these products are now at least in God, because people are becoming more aware are demanding that these are balanced for, you know, our parts. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armor colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armor's colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. It's interesting because I think the assumption is made if it's in a store or if it's in my doctor's office or my NP's office, then I've, evidently it's good for me. And I'm the first person to say that you know, parabens alone, which can be these estrogen, you know, disrupting chemicals, you know, you're putting it right into a very vascular part of your body. And, you know, we have to, as consumers really be advocating and asking and demanding for these things. I know anytime I go to my local GYN's office, and I'm sure this is not a criticism, but any woman who's had a GYN exam, you know, they over lubricate everything and you feel like it's a slip and slide. You're like, oh my gosh, how can I get the stuff off of me? Because it seems to, there's just so much of it to make sure that the speculum examination all goes kind of effortlessly. And this is a good kind of tangential jump into talking about some of these painful conditions. And these are the ones that women sent me DMs. They sent me messages. They didn't want to talk about it openly. Let's talk about painful intercourse. Let's talk about lichen sclerosis, vulvodynia, and even rectal itching. These were like each one of these were touched on, you know, people, I think it was on sex in the city years ago that Charlotte thought she had vulvodynia or she was diagnosed with vulvodynia. And so trying to destigmatize these things that do happen to otherwise healthy people so that they understand there's ways to address these proactively. And these conditions are very difficult because I always tell patients, these are not cookbook conditions. It's not like, oh, you have vulvodynia. We're going to do this, this, and this, and you're going to be better. No, because vulvodynia just means pain of the vulva. And so, okay, we have pain, you have burning, you have itching. They all fall in the same category. We now got to go back and find what's the root cause. Now, I will tell you, one of the things that happens is the rates of vulvodynia go up every January, every single January, because people are trying to do their New Year's resolutions. They're trying to lose weight. And what do I see? The two biggest culprits are they got a Peloton for the holidays and now they're sitting on their stationary bike and they're compressing their pedendal nerves because those seats are pushing on the pedendal nerves and nerves that are right where your sit bones are, are, are like kind of come in contact. And now they're irritating those, those nerves. And now they get pelvic pain. They can get worsening of bladder symptoms. They get worsening of the vulvar pain and inflammation. 
So that's number one. The other thing is they start eating a lot more kale and spinach because they're like, oh, I'm going to eat healthy. And they start eating more kale and spinach. And we see the rates of kidney stones go up, but also vulvodynia because those vegetables are very high in oxalates. And oxalates, when they build up in the tissue and they tend to go towards mucosal membranes and now cause inflammation. So every January, and I'm not saying like, don't do your Peloton or don't, you know, stop eating kale. It's just, if you're having those problems, stop those two things first. And then we need to kind of look into what's going on because, you know, vulvodynia can be anything from there's an infection. It could be there's a food allergy that's now being, you know, because when you have an allergy, you think of somebody with an allergy and their face blows up. It's because their muco- mucosal membranes are blowing up. Well, sometimes you see those allergies just being expressed in the vulvar tissue. I see patients with seasonal allergies that every, you know, I had one woman who she had ragweed sensitivity. Every fall, she like, she would get some stuffiness, but her vulva would become so inflamed and we would have to address, address that. Other thing is sometimes there can be from emotional trauma or even some sort of physical trauma. So one of the things that can happen is let's say, you know, sex is painful. Well, our bodies and our minds don't want to keep doing something that's painful. So now the next time you're in the position where you might be having sex, even though you're like, yeah, yeah, I want to do this. Your brain is going, no, 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 it hurt last time. So what's going to happen? Your body's going to splint against that pain and you're going to tighten the muscles in your pelvic floor. And so what happens with that? It makes pain, sex painful because those muscles are tight. And so now the tissue feels like it's getting ripped when you're having sex. So then this just sets up this vicious cycle. So sometimes that's triggered initially by emotional trauma or something physical trauma like you, you know, maybe you injured yourself or I had pelvic floor spasms after I had my hysterectomy. It took a long time for the, those muscles to relax. And the problem is once those muscles tighten, they themselves now cause pain because now when the muscles are tight, the blood flow can't get into those muscles. And now when and it can't oxygenate that tissue to get those muscles to relax. So now it causes more pain and they tighten even more. So sometimes we need to do like pelvic physical therapy. And there are some amazing pelvic physical therapists around the country that can help with getting those muscles to relax. Or we say like, you know, if your leg was spasming, you heat, stretch and massage. Well, in the vagina, you get a, get a little more creative with that. So, but, you know, so maybe soaking in a bathtub or uh, putting a hot warm pack on the, on your bottom, not too long though. You don't want to burn your skin. So something to try to get that, that mu- those muscles relaxed or even using a device to help stretch out the tissue or even you having a partner taking their fingers and trying to relax and gently pull on those muscles so because you want blood flow and you want those muscles to be relaxed so that sex will be enjoyable. But I always say when people are having painful sex, they need to go have that looked at because there could be so many different causes. We want to make sure there's nothing more serious going on. And it's all serious because it's affecting your life, but you want to make sure there's not something like an infection or something that can get elsewhere in the body. But that can be very disruptive. And here's, here's one of the other problems is the vagina if you don't use it, you lose it. And this is true because what'll happen is if you're not sexually active, and even if you don't have a partner not sexually active with yourself, you're not getting the blood flow into that tissue to keep that tissue health healthy. And the blood vessels will actually start to retract and that'll make the tissue even more brittle. And same thing, the vagina can shrink if it's not being used. I mean, I've had women who, you know, lost their partners from, you know, you know, they were older women who maybe their partners died and hadn't had sex in years. And now they come in for a pelvic exam. You can barely get a pinky inside of them because that tissue is shrinking up. So actually we got to keep using it, whether it's by yourself or with a partner to keep it healthy. Now, at the same time, I'm kind of laughing because my husband always loves to use like, hey, we got to do our physical therapy. And I'm like, look at him like you're crazy. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, no, but, no yeah, once, but once those changes happen, are they permanent? Meaning if you don't use it and you lose it, does that mean that's, you know, the vagina length shortens and you can agglutinate and the tissues can stick together? I'm presuming that's probably a permanent 
it can be no it can easily be reversed it can be reversed with either using topical hormones or laser and combination of physical therapy or sometimes even using dilators to stretch things back out because the vagina was made to be able to stretch and go back because you know you can pass a 10 pound baby through that you know so if it just was stretched and stayed, that would not be great. <laughs> so, you know, it will go back. So same thing, if it shrinks, you can get it back to normal, which also brings up, we see a lot of these con- problems with lichen sclerosis. And so lichen sclerosis is an inflammatory condition of the vulva. And that becomes incredibly itchy. And unfortunately, the mainstream treatment for that, t- for that type of condition is steroids. And so topical steroids can help for a short period of time, but over a long period of time, they can actually worsen that condition. They can thin out the tissue more. So I actually have found that there's a big dietary component to that condition. And so if we make sure we get people off inflammatory foods, maybe test for food sensitivities or test gut health, that they tend to do better because it's, it's like an autoimmune disease of the vulva. Um, the tissue becomes very white, very thin, very friable, cracks very easily. But even things like I love emu oil. Now, some people don't like the idea of emu oil because it is from an animal and it's not like they, you know, the animal has to be, has to be killed to use it. But emu oil is, is very anti-inflammatory. That works great for vulvar, for lichen sclerosis, even CBD oil. I actually been using more CBD oil on patients where the, you can just get any CBD oil and apply it to the vulvar vaginal area because it has anti-inflammatory properties to it. Hit or miss with coconut oil. A lot of people always ask about coconut. I have seen research either way with coconut. Like coconut can be, some people find it very soothing. And I say, if you don't have any problems, go ahead, use it. But Coconut oil can be antibacterial and so it can affect the microbiome. So if you're getting recurrent infections, then I say stay away from the coconut. But if you're not having problems, then then coconut. Recently, somebody told me another uh, one of my colleagues said that they see great improvement in tissue with sesame oil mm-hmm. and that it doesn't have as much of an antimicrobial side effect. And I'm like, hmm, I'll have to try that out with people. But, you know, something to keep that tissue oiled and, and moist in that you want to keep it like moisturized, like something that's going to kind of get deeper. And this is where also the laser technology, I've re- been able to reverse lichen sclerosis with laser technology, microneedling, and platelet-rich plasma. So some of the regenerative therapies, you can actually reverse it. Now, here's, I say reverse, I'm going to put air quotes around the word reverse. Same thing when we're using those therapies to rejuvenate the vagina, we can't stop you from aging. The aging process is going to still happen, but we can kind of rewind and back things up with these regenerative therapies. And then there is like a maintenance. Usually it's something where you may have to do it every six months to a year to keep that tissue healthy. I had one patient where she had horrible like in sclerosis, like the vulva all the way down and around the anus. And we were able to get it back, the tissue back to normal with the laser. But then, you know, everyone gets busy and, and then the pandemic happened. And so she kind of disappeared for a while. And then all of a sudden she came back three years later and it would all come back. And so it just meant having to do the laser a little bit more, get it back healthy and then keeping on a maintenance, a maintenance therapy schedule with that. So does it tend to be, I guess those internal therapies, microneedling sounds painful in a sensitive body part. And I I would imagine that there's some degree of downtime with these lasers and PRP and and how does that work? I'm fascinated. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, it definitely like I'm thinking of somebody coming at you with a needle that they're going to stick in your vagina does not sound like a good idea. But interesting enough, when you do it to the outside, the vulvar area, you do have to put numbing medicine on there. And surprising enough, when you do things inside the vagina, if it's just like laser and you're not actually penetrating with a needle, you don't even have to numb up because the way the nerve endings are, you don't really feel it. It just feels crampy. But I will tell you, I myself have had laser um, and usually the usually they're crampy for about 24 hours. And then most people don't complain of any discomfort after that. I mean, the vaginal area is so vascular. This is why we were meant to heal very quickly because in childbirth, we get tears, rips and tears, and it heals very, very quickly. 
you know, I always warn people when it comes to any of those treatments that you may feel like you have a sunburn for up to a week. And because the tissue is raw for about a week afterwards, there are protect, you have to use protective creams to kind of create a barrier in the skin so that you're not getting any kind of infections from other bacteria that are in and around that area. But for the most time, you know, usually there's no sac. Like if you do the outside, there's no sex for a week. If you just laser or treat or do radio frequency in the inside of the vagina, usually no sex for about two days, if that. Most of the time, people are going back to their normal activities. So that's really encouraging yeah. that there's so many options. Now, I want to touch on rectal itching before we briefly touch on you know, the gut microbiome and how that's interrelated with the vaginal microbiome and what type of testing you like to use. Yeah. Yeah. So rectal itching, once again, so many different causes from hemorrhoids, which unfortunately a large number of women have hemorrhoids from either childbirth or from constipation. It's just, you know, they're varicose veins of the butt. That's all they are. So, but they can become very inflamed. They can become very itching, itchy, any of the skin conditions, even anal fissures where you get little cracks in the tissue. But you know, what's something that I'm thinking about that I didn't mention, which actually is not just for the rectum, but also affects the vagina and causes itching is paper products. So toilet paper, pads, tampons, incontinence products, many of these products are bleached. So to get that nice white color of our toilet paper, those paper products are bleached, but a lot of the bleach stays behind in those products. And when you put bleached materials against the skin, it can be very irritating. And so if you're someone is suffering from any of those, first of all, I would say if you're using any paper products that are white, 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 then stay away from them. There's now, it was so impossible in the past to find these products, but now you can find them anywhere. You want to look for organic, unbleached products. So, you know, that's, there's a lot of like bamboo toilet papers that are out there that are unbleached, that are nice, and the personal pads and tampons. The other thing that we do to ourselves all the time is what we wash our clothes in. And so you may have be having itching because of the dyes and the fragrance in our laundry detergents and our fabric softeners. This is why I tell people, you know, wash your underwear in like a dye-free, fragrance-free, and it has to be fragrance-free, not unscented, because unscented, they actually put fragrance in it to cover up the smell of the product. So it has to be a fragrance-free, dye-free soap. And then also what we're washing ourselves with. I mean, I always tell people, you know, there was a company that not too long ago was uh, marketing to teenagers, and they came out with a creamsicle scented like vaginal wash. And I'm like, our vagina was not meant to smell like creamsicles. And not only that, but all these harsh chemicals and soaps that you're putting on our skin, not only do the chemicals from the fragrance and the detergents can irritate the tissue, but they're also stripping away our protective oils that can now make our tissue really dry and easily irritated. So honestly, just Warm water is probably the best. I actually say, I used to only say that was it, but there are a couple new products that are made specifically for the vulvovaginal area that I like. THD Feminine Health is a company that just came out with a boric acid wash, foaming wash. So far, I've tried it personally. I like it. So, but I haven't really seen any issues with it. There's a couple other companies that have some like delicate washes in there, but Honestly, if you just do like warm water and that's it, that's, you know, that's all you need. We don't need special perfumes and things down there. If you are noticing an odor, especially a fishy odor, that's usually a sign of a bacterial imbalance. If there's a bread, bready like odor, then that's usually from yeast. So, you know, other than that, it's usually the bacteria on our body that are causing those, a lot of those odors. So if you're having those problems that you need to have that looked into. Absolutely. I hadn't even thought about bleach toilet paper. That's brilliant. That is brilliant. I will definitely make sure the young woman who reached out to me that I point that out in the transcript. And then just lastly, and I want to be respectful of your time when we're talking about the vaginal microbiome and the gut microbiome, Mm -hmm. really identifying that they are interrelated. They are not separate. What kind of testing do you personally like to do for the gut microbiome? Do you like the GI map? I love the GI map. And and there's so many different companies that make tests to test the, the microbiome. I like the GI map because it's one of the few laboratories that Medicare will cover. 
So usually if Medicare will cover it, then the other insurances cover it. But I warn you, don't hold your breath because, you know, the insurance companies, I think nowadays are really looking for reasons not to cover things, but it is worth every dime to get answers and to make a difference. I mean, I myself was at one point in my life had anxiety, depression, and was diagnosed with an autoimmune, a primary immune deficiency disease. And I was, because I was getting sick all the time. And one day I went, wait a minute, what does anxiety, depression, and immune system have to do with each other? And I went, oh my gut. And I was getting recurrent vaginal infections, recurrent bladder infections. So I tested my gut. I was filled with yeast, filled, my intestine was filled with yeast. So the reason why they're connected is 95% of our happy hormone, our serotonin is made in our gut and 80% of our immune system is made in our gut. So when the gut is off, that, that affects the brain. So even the brain, gut and vagina are connected. So I love the GI map and, you know, just talk, going back and talking about how the vagina is connected to the brain. This is a really fascinating one is researchers are finding that if the microbiome of the vagina is off, there's a feedback loop to the brain to say it's not the ideal time to reproduce. And so your brain doesn't know the difference between you just want to have sex and versus you're trying to make a baby. So your brain will start dampening all the processes of libido. It will squelch your sex drive and can it affect hormones fertility. So even like our postmenopausal patients, why, you know, they come in a lot of times they want hormones because their sex drive is like tanked and it's not an always not always a hormone answer. It may be a vaginal microbiome answer. And so from the vaginal microbiome standpoint, there are a couple over the counter tests that are that you can just as a patient just get them. But they're really just gonna they're just for informational purposes only. There's two companies. One is Juno Bio and the other one's called EV. Those are for just information purposes only. But it's 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 very difficult because you get the you get them and you're like, okay, well things are off now what? So there, from a medical standpoint, one of the medical labs is a little bit more expensive and you got to get it usually through a healthcare practitioner. I really like Microgen. That's a company. Microgen makes a really good product. And in fact, actually, we are in the process of developing some courses to try to teach people how to read these products and how to naturally fix and balance these hormones or balance these, these microbiomes. So yeah. No, you've given me so much and so much for my listeners to think about. Please let my listeners know how to connect with you, how to connect with your amazing podcast, for which I was very grateful to be recently interviewed on. How can we connect with you outside of this podcast? Yeah, well, first of all, follow me on Instagram. It's Dr. Betsy Greenleaf underscore or any social media. I'm all over the place. Just if you look up Dr. Betsy Greenleaf, I'm in there one one form or the other. I have the pelvic floor store where we have a lot of the pelvic products that I mentioned, and we do put a lot of education on there. DrBetsyGreenleaf.com is actually in the middle of getting upgraded. So you may or may not be able to get to me through there. And then uh, two podcasts, one called Body, Mind, Spirit, that's done through the nonprofit organization, WYTV7.org, and then another one called Some of Your Parts. So I'm, I'm everywhere. No. Awesome. Thank you so much. I've learned so much today. I know my listeners will as well. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This has been wonderful. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. 
Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness. 